This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Good quality fish food is, of course, critical for the aquaculture and aquarium industries. Fresh and frozen options can supplement commercial pellets and flakes or may be important staples for some species. So how does one company's fish food help save a landlocked salmon population which won't eat it? My guest today is Nuri Fisher, president of Piscine Energetics, based in British Columbia, Canada. Join us as Nuri shares his life story and explains how his company uses an innovative solution to mitigate an ecological crisis. We'll be right back after these messages. Looking for a dental treat that does more for your dog? Daily Dose is a two-in-one chew that pairs a daily dental scrub with powerful supplements to help with the biggest health concerns facing our dogs. Daily Dose was developed by vets to be simple to use and super effective. Plus, dogs love the taste. Available for joint, skin, heart health, or calming. Daily Dose, your pet's daily dose of awesome. Visit yourpetsdailydose.com to save $3 on your first bag with promo code PETLIFE. That's yourpetsdailydose.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Nuri Fisher, entrepreneur and president of Piscine Energetics based in British Columbia, Canada. Thanks again for joining us, Nuri. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So as I kind of let you know ahead of time, I I like to get a little personal at the beginning of these interviews, get a little more information and see how you got into aquatics and sort of the aquarium world. So let's talk about some of your earliest memories. How did you first get interested in aquatics and marine life? Sure. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, you know, probably a five minute drive away from the uh, from the beach, from the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, regular family outings on the weekend in the spring and summer was down to the beach, playing in tide pools, flipping rocks over. And uh, I was just on a mission to capture everything that would move, so to speak. (laughs) Typically, that would uh, end up with with a debate between my my parents and I, whether or not it's coming home with us and uh, typically did not come home with us. (laughs) So you got into a lot of arguments with your parents, unfortunately. Pretty much over a flipped over uh, rock that we find uh, a crab underneath or something like that. <laughs> so when you were younger, did you have an aquarium? And if so, uh, can you maybe let us a little bit into what you held and what type of aquarium it was? Sure. So I'm the youngest of three, or I have three older brothers with so four boys in my family. So I'm the youngest. So when I grew up, there was always an aquarium in the home. It was a 15-gallon hexagonal Freshwater aquarium with the uh, wrought iron stand, black wrought iron stand, under gravel filter, hang on the back, aqua clear 150 or mini or something like that. 
And, you know, the aquarium went through phases of being dry and then being full with water and fish. And it was kind of a, a cycle. The aquarium would have fish in it every now and then. But when I turned about five years old, I remember I asked my dad if we could move the aquarium into my room. And from the time it was, I was five years old till probably the time I was almost 20 when I moved out, that aquarium always had water in it. And, you know, it basically started with, you know, your typical kind of freshwater community fish of, you know, live bears and guppies and that sort of thing. And then as I got into it, you know, there was a 27 gallon tank that showed up in the house. And then there was another 27 gallon tank. And then there was a 50 gallon and there was a 75 gallon and a 100 gallon. And it kind of went on and on. You know, the fish that got me hooked was definitely you know, my red Oscars, right? That's when all of a sudden for me, it became from a from a fish to a pet, so to speak. Uh, that's great. So we're going to skip a little ahead. And um, you mentioned when we talked or in your bio that you went to the University of British Columbia and actually ended up studying marine biology and commerce. So, um, I mean, they're obviously somewhat related. What drove you to those areas uh, specifically? Yeah. So as I was a young kid growing up in Vancouver, And I had this obsession with fish. At the time, my grandfather, this is when I was in high school, he was living in a senior home around the corner from where we lived. And they had a 200-gallon saltwater aquarium donated to the senior home. So with a little bit of nepotism, my grandfather being the president of the uh, resident society, he got me a job looking after this saltwater aquarium. And I thought this was fantastic. I'd ride my bike over, scrub, uh, scrub the tank, uh, look after the fish. And I never really kept uh, a large saltwater aquarium of that size before. So I got to develop or, or I had a learning curve that was quite sharp trying to keep this aquarium healthy and looking good. You uh, ended up attending the University of British Columbia and studying marine biology and commerce. Those are, I guess, somewhat related. How did you decide to take those two? What drove you to those areas? Yeah. So as I was going into university, I had uh, actually started a business when I was in high school called Dr. Fish Aquarium Installation Servicing. And that business was really derived out of some good old family nepotism. My grandfather was living in a senior home and they had a large aquarium donated to the home. So I used to look after this aquarium when I was in high school And there'd be a lot of physicians that would come to the home to see their elderly patients who couldn't necessarily make it into the practice. One thing led to another. I ended up getting the nickname Dr. Fish. So I started helping a lot of these doctors setting up aquariums in their their offices and practices. And when I graduated from high school, you know, I was set. I was going to expand Dr. Fish Aquariums. And my dad said, you certainly will after you go to university. So I naturally (laughs) ended up at UBC studying both business and marine biology. So did you have uh, any favorite classes in each of those areas? Without a doubt, when I was in biology, you know, once we got, you know, sort of to this, you know, tropical marine biology where, you know, it was all the, start studying the origin and the, uh, the names and the families, you know, really the tropical fish, right? That, you know, when I was, um, really just a kid growing up in high school i never had the opportunity to see tropical fish in the wild until maybe once or twice on family trips to uh you know snorkeling or diving but um just tropical 
biology was just what really piqued my interest, especially as growing up on the you know, Pacific Northwest, where you know, it was primarily temperate fish. And in you know, business, I was always just really into entrepreneurship and kind of new venture creation. Now, after, I guess, after graduation, were you pretty intent on kind of going back to your, your high school business or had you had other plans already? Yeah. So when I was in university going to school, so I was running this company and, uh, you know, I was starting to see come my friends, you know, starting to graduate. And I was going maybe to school about three quarter time. So my friends are starting to graduate. They're going out into the real world and they're getting uh, jobs. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe it's time I wrap up playing with the fish, so to speak, and get a real job. So um, I buckled down and one of my brothers started looking after my aquarium service business. And I went to business school on Vancouver Island in uh, Victoria. I went to Royal Roads University there. And I studied entrepreneurial management. And, you know, my plan was going to get a business degree and I'm going to enter the real world. Well, while I was in university, there was this business plan competition. So I thought, hmm, I got a great idea for a um, aquarium service business. <laughs> so I entered this business plan competition and ended up, you know, winning this competition. It was sponsored by you know, the uh, Royal Bank of Canada. And they gave you some, uh, uh, the winner got some, some capital to get this business going. So I went off to business school, graduated business school. And the day I graduated, I fire up my Dr. Fish Aquarium service business again. <laughs> That's great. And I ran that for a number of years. And while I was doing that service business, I started to become a customer of a company called Piscean Energetics based in the Okanagan, which is in the interior of British Columbia. Ah, okay. So I guess that's kind of a good segue. So let's talk about Piscean Energetics. Um, you know, it's a pretty uh, groundbreaking company. And to be honest, until we, you and I maybe discussed a little bit several years back, I really wasn't as familiar with your company. Um, and I didn't know all the kind of interesting innovation and ecological importance that was associated with it. So can we start from the beginning? Can you explain what your primary product is and a little bit more about its native range and, and, and all the kind of issues related to this? Sure, absolutely. So Piscean Energetics and the sort of the history and background, it really comes down to the significance of what we have in the interior of British Columbia, which is this lake called Okanagan Lake. And just to kind of set the set the tone, so this lake is approximately 250 miles inland or east of Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's basically sitting right just north of the US Canadian border. And the lake is approximately 90 miles north to south, about 2 miles wide, and it's extremely deep. And you know, Going back many, 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 many years ago, you know, when First Nations groups settled around this region, they did so because of a very strong salmon population. So it's basically a landlocked sockeye salmon, which we refer to them as kokanee salmon. And this lake used to support a population of about a million, uh, what we call adult or sexual mature fish. And just due to 
overfishing and there's never commercial fishery but more just a sport fishery and for cultural and heritage purposes for first nations groups you know the population of this salmon completely collapsed going into the late 60s and so what happened was the ministry of environment in british columbia was looking for methodologies to improve the rearing conditions or to improve the food sources potentially that these kokanee salmon could be feeding on to having larger spawns. So in the 60s, the idea was to introduce mysis shrimp to a number of lakes in British Columbia. And it worked successfully in shallow lakes, whereby they would introduce the mysis shrimp, the mysis shrimp would multiply and breed, and they'd have a significant volume of mysis shrimp, which would then be consumed by both the kokanee salmon and as well as the rainbow trout and other trout species actually are in the different various lakes, and it worked successfully. So they looked at this introduction of mysis shrimp really as, you know, this is the way we're going to rehabilitate and improve the population of kokanee salmon in Okanagan Lake. But what the Ministry of Environment Biologists failed to recognize was that although this worked well in shallow lakes, Okanagan Lake has an average depth of about 300 feet, 300 to 400 feet. And there's certain parts of this lake that is up to seven or 800 feet deep. And for those anglers out there, people listening ever go trout fishing or salmon fishing, very seldomly do salmon or trout go deeper than about 150 feet. Let's call it 50 meters. So what happened was you have this deep lake that would put this foreign invasive mysis shrimp into, and these shrimp were now down at the bottom of the lake during the day. And at nighttime, they exhibit this diurnal vertical migration, which basically means is as the sun is setting and as it's getting darker, these shrimp come up to the surface. So you basically had this mysis shrimp, which was supposed to be a food source for the adult salmon, so they would have larger spawns. Now these shrimp was outcompeting the juvenile salmon, we'll call you know salmon that are an inch in size and smaller, for the same phytoplankton. And so that's kind of the history and background of how the shrimp got into the lake, why they got into the lake, and also the problem that they pose in the lake now, and kind of what we're doing to rehabilitate and balance out this food web now. Before we get into that, let's take a short break. Then we'll start hitting up on how kind of the innovation of your company is helping that. So let's take a break and we'll continue our discussion with Nuri Fisher, president of Piscine Energetics, after these messages from our sponsors. Mojo would swallow things whole, a chicken carcass, a bird nest, and assorted stones and sticks. After surgery, Mojo had skin issues. He was constantly itching and scratching, chewing the hair right off of his legs. 
D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. On the Dynavite, all of these symptoms disappear. Dynavite is nutrition. If you love your dog, you need to put him on Dynavite. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Nuri Fisher, president of Piscine Energetics. So, Nuri, you're kind of going into the uh, the explanation of how the mysa shrimp got into that specific lake, and I know they were introduced in others as well in both Canada and the U.S. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about where the shrimp, and then go into some of the things that you were doing with uh, Piscine Energetics to, sure. to uh, mitigate? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of mysa shrimp, you know, mysa shrimp have quite a broad distribution you know they can actually be found in the great lakes they can be found there's mysa shrimp can be found in in lakes in europe basically virtually every single continent you can more or less find a mysa shrimp or a species of mysa shrimps the ones that particularly ended up in okanagan lake i believe they're actually came from the great lakes and for those of you who aren't familiar with mysa shrimp they're about a centimeter, maybe two centimeters full grown. So it's really, when we're talking shrimp, it's really just a large zooplankton. And it was in 1966, several buckets of these shrimp was poured into the lake by the Ministry of Environment, which, you know, exploded. Now, today, there's biomass of several thousand metric tons in the lake every year. So with all of that, so how did Piscine Energetics kind of come up with this idea? And, and can you maybe explain how all of that works? It's pretty, it's not, I mean, it's not very complicated, but it is a little bit complicated. Sure. It's the original founder of our company. He at the time, this is going back into the late 90s, he was working on invasive species mitigation and management with the Ministry of Environment. And particularly, he was working at the time, we also have a lot of invasive Asian carp in Okanagan Lake. And he was developing some ways to, you know, trap carp and that sort of thing. And one of the uh, Ministry of Environment biologists was speaking with, with our original founder about, you know, this mysa shrimp that's in the lake. And how do we go about catching and removing these mysa shrimp? So as I mentioned, you know, these shrimp are centimeter and a half, you know, almost half an inch in size full grown. So how do you go about catching a shrimp where your target species is so small, where at the same time mitigating any potential bycatch of non-targeted species? So in, in essence, in this situation, we're trying to remove the mysis shrimp while at the same time, this is a kokanee salmon recovery effort. So the last thing we want to do is harming any of the kokanee fry or, in essence, catching them as bycatch while we're removing the mysis shrimp. So we actually pioneered a sustainable fishing methodology. We patented this system. And what we're able to do, quite simply, is the cod end of our net. So we do a midwater beam trawl. So that involves using basically an aluminum bar to spread the horizontal opening of the net and we're towing that in the middle of the water and we tow primarily at 
nighttime. So it's when the sun is setting, the shrimp start to come off up the bottom of the lake. And the shrimp, they come more or less right to where the thermocline level is. So that's where the warm surface temperature is going to meet the cool water slightly below the surface. So Okanagan Lake and the environment here is really quite unique. So we are in Canada's only pocket desert. It'll get to well up into the mid-90s today. And wow. so the surface temperature of the lake heats up to about 74 degrees. But if you go 30 or 40 feet below the surface, it's 48 degree water. And that doesn't matter if it's in the middle of August or the middle of January. That cold water is where the mice shrimp are living year round. And that's also one of the significance that makes it such a unique organism from a nutritional profile is really because of the environment that it's in. So they're living in this cold water, yet, as I mentioned, we're in a pocket desert. The sun came out this morning at about half past four, and the sun isn't going to set until about 10 o'clock tonight. So we have extremely long, sunny days, which creates a massive amount of phytoplankton. And that's what causes the shrimp to come up at nighttime, and they want to feed on that phytoplankton. So that's why... We harvest at nighttime. Now, getting back to how we mitigate the bycatch is we design this technology that on the end of our net, we attach this virtually a suction tube that is pumping the shrimp from the cold water back up to a secondary catch boat. And that does two things. Number one, because of this huge temperature variance from the surface water to below the thermocline level, where the mice and shrimp are. By transferring them through this suction tube where there's this cold water coming up, we're not exposing them to this warm water, so we're not shocking the shrimp, and we're basically landing every single shrimp alive onto our catch vessel. At the same time, through this suction tube, we have a special excluder, which actually ejects any of the small kokanee fry out of the suction tube it down below in 50 feet of water. If for any reason they don't get excluded at 50 feet deep of water, again, they're coming up alive just with the shrimp onto our catch vessel. So we can actually, on the surface, we can take those kokanee fry, reacclimate them and put them back into the lake. So we basically have a live well on our catch vessel because in the middle of the night, or sorry, say in the middle of the summer, when you bring that shrimp or even that any bycatch that comes to the surface, you have to remember that the surface temperature is now 74 degrees, but they just came out of water, which was 48, 50 degrees. So it's simple, but a little complicated to explain. But there is videos available if anyone wants to see that on uh, online. Yeah, it's not, and I actually had a chance to uh, to watch one of the videos. And so, yeah, it, it's a pretty cool idea. I, I, you know, I definitely wouldn't have probably wouldn't have thought of that. I, I would have thought the uh, the higher temperatures would have been an issue. Let's go back to, um, I guess, the nutritional value. You talked a little bit about that briefly. So, can you explain why amici shrimp have such high nutritional value? Yeah, absolutely. So we have to remember that the mice shrimp, they're not native to this lake. And they position themselves within, we'll it, you know, within this food web in the lake. They are the largest, we'll call it zooplankton. 
So the mice and shrimp really are, you know, benefit from this bioaccumulation of other zooplankton and phytoplankton and daphne and algae, so on and so forth that's in the lake. And it's really what's in the mysis that makes them so nutritious. Now, when we also look at the environment of this lake, when we have this cold water that the shrimp are living in year round, they have to store a tremendous amount of lipids. At the same time, as I mentioned, they're feeding on this phytoplankton. So you have particularly, you know, nutritionally dense phytoplankton, you know, really single cell, you know, various algaes in the lake that are so nutritious. And when the mice and shrimp are gut loaded with this phytoplankton and kind of semi-digested and already broken it down, when you in turn feed that to a fish, the bioavailability of that nutrients is extremely high bioavailable. You know, as well, when we mention this lake is 90 miles long, this lake has a very slow turnover. So the Okanagan Lake turns over less than 2% annually. And that means there is no real tides. <laughs> well, it's obviously a lake, so no tide. But there's, it's not like we're even in like a, in like a river or there's streams that feed the lake, but it doesn't really provide that much kind of tumbling or upwelling, so to speak. So because it's such a low turnover lake, if the mice and shrimp want to eat, they need to actively swim to the surface to feed. So if you have a shrimp that is, you know, a centimeter in size, some of these shrimp are swimming up to, you know, 20 to 30,000 times their body length every night to have a meal and having a very, very nutritious meal. And as soon as the sun comes up, they immediately are going to disappear right back down to the depth of the lake. And so it's really this unique environment that created kind of this super shrimp, which is nutritionally complete. Whereby in a lot of times people say, you know, you need to vary, you know, a fish's diet. Well, what are we varying the diet for? Fish need essential amino acids. They need the essential fatty acids. And that's one thing if you have a shrimp that's, say, aquacultured or is raised in a pond that doesn't have natural flow of nutrients and phytoplankton coming into a lake. But it's almost like these mice shrimp, specifically out of Okanagan Lake, it's kind of like the nutritionally complete smoothie or the shake that has more or less everything in it. Again, because of the amount of phytoplankton, it's very rich in astaxanthin, which is, you know, extremely popular for increasing both coloration naturally in fish, but also increasing immunity for fish. So how easy was it to, um, I guess, to kind of market these, but, you know, back in the day and, and um, obviously you're pretty well known now, but back then, was it a pretty easy um, thing to do? That's a great question. You know, and every year we think we learn how to tell our story and we realize we've just figured out a better way to tell our story. And so, you know, in terms of marketing and communicating our product to the marketplace, I think the biggest gains for us is just being education. We really run a boutique microfishery on this lake. And one of our, I guess, messages 
is that we can only be successful from a business enterprise when we are lean and we're minimizing waste. And it's also communicating that to the marketplace. And what I mean by that, for example, is, you know, it's how are people buying or purchasing fish food? What makes that purchasing decision from the typical hobbyist? And what knowledge are they basing it on? So how we have been surviving and growing is kind of taking the destructor approach. For instance, you know, when people buy fish food, and typically someone's going to say, what are you buying? They want to talk price. Most people or most hobbyists say, oh, I like to uh, buy blister packs. How many grams are in a blister pack? A lot of the market is buying fish food based on grams, but very few people within the industry understand that nutrition doesn't come from grams. Nutrition comes from calories. And so when we're selling what I call a premium product and the price point may appear to be higher, we're actually creating more value for the customer. And what I mean by value is we're creating economic value and we're creating environmental value and we're creating social value. What I mean by that is we want to minimize waste. So for instance, our primary product is a frozen fish food. One of our mantras is what I call from skipper to salesman. Every single person who comes in contact with Piscine Energetics food is a Piscine Energetics employee. So we, by meaning we own our own collection vessels, our skippers, our Piscine Energetics employees, right, to our salespeople. What that has enabled us to do is to create unprecedented control within our supply chain. It's not as if we're purchasing food from someone else, thawing it down, repackaging, so on and so forth. So if we were to just look at, say, the typical frozen food, our diet has about 70% moisture in it. When we look at other diets that are out there, whether it be brine shrimp or bloodworms or other mice that comes in from overseas, those products are typically packaged anywhere between 90 to 95% moisture. So part of our mission and our sustainability mission is if someone's going to use a blister pack, if they use a Piscine Energetics blister pack, there's about 160 calories in that blister pack versus other packages which may only have 30 calories. What does that mean? For every one package of ours that the hobbyist chooses to purchase, he would have to purchase five to six of these other packages that are out there. That means there's five extra plastic clamshells going into the landfill. That means there's five extra styrofoam boxes going into the landfill. You know, when we explode this up to look at our aquaculture markets, the same calories that we can fit in a 40-foot reefer shipping container is equivalent to five or six containers of other frozen foods that are on the market. So that has really been how we've communicated and the benefits of our product and how we compete on the marketplace when, sure, we're dealing with North American labor, North American overhead versus majority of frozen foods which are coming from overseas. That all makes sense. So going back to the lake, uh, do you have any idea what kind of uh, impact, the? and I like your term, uh, boutique microfishery, um, what kind of impact that is having on the population of shrimp in that lake? Yeah. 
So the population of shrimp is really interesting. You kind of see these cyclical cycles. So every year, the biomass of the mysis ranges from anywhere from, you know, two to three up to, you know, 6,000 metric tons. And so we conduct biosampling all throughout the lake. But again, because we think, you know, people think, oh, yeah, this is a huge lake, but it is still small and it is easily affected by environmental factors. So, for instance, last year and the year before, we had some severe forest fires in the area and it particularly cut down on the visibility. It was so bad two years ago, you couldn't see 20 or 30 feet in front of you. And that lasted about six weeks. It was just an awful year for forest fires that really affected the amount of sunlight that was able to penetrate into the lake and so there wasn't as much phytoplankton so we had quite a bit of a slower year the biomass estimation really 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 petered off they just weren't there and this year i'll give you an example is we had a very very late start to the season this year uh, again 2020 it's just this has been the year of the unknown yet all of a sudden, the last several weeks here, we've seen a huge abundance of what we call baby mysis or small mysis that are virtually a quarter of an inch. And so the mysis in the lake typically have a two-year life cycle. And so we've seen a huge hatch right towards August. And we typically see this hatch earlier in the season. So we can see we have a very, very high numbers of sort of year one age class. And so these shrimp would be mature next year, plus their spawn. So, you know, it's one of those things. We've been doing this for over a decade and we're still learning and we're still sampling and doing these bioestimates. But one of the things I'm most proud of is, you know, Piscine started this experimental fishery back in the late 90s. And after a decade, they were able to actually reopen the sport fishery for kokanee salmon, which is still based on a number of maximum fish that could be caught throughout a season. But the sport fishery had been closed really for over a decade. So in certain areas, we are starting to see some correction and the balancing out of this uh, food web. Well that's, well, that's great to hear. Well, we're running out of time a little bit, but I did want to ask you before we sign off about your Save Your Aquarium campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's really, apart from the aquarium hobbyist market that we serve the two other major markets we serve is aquaculture and public aquariums and zoological institutions and you know 2020 as we all know has been a year none of us have ever seen before uh with the covid19 pandemic and the effects that it has on on so many people uh, and so many industries what we noticed as uh, as a company, or I should say, what I noticed personally firsthand, I was actually in Las Vegas when the COVID crisis hit. And there was a lot of public aquariums and displays in Las Vegas. And I was actually with several of our, our industry colleagues down there in the middle of March. You know, we were all just having a casual dinner and it wasn't the tonality or the excitement or fun night it should have been because... What was on most people's minds is how are they going to let their staff know that they may or may not have a job tomorrow? And what we saw from March of this year moving forward was public aquariums and zoos shutting down. Many of these places closing their doors for the first time ever. You know, zoos and aquariums are one of those 
few attractions that for the most part are open 365 days a year. They're open Christmas, they're open New Year's Day, yet COVID-19 created this absolute unprecedented close the doors, visitors can't come, staff need to stay home, and what are we going to do? So what we created at Piscine Energetics was a Save Your Aquarium campaign. And quite simply, what it is, is a buy one, give one campaign. For aquarium hobbyists who gained inspiration, who have ever been to a local public aquarium, who the reason they set up their aquarium in their home, whether they realize it consciously or subconsciously, nine out of 10 people was because of their visit to a public aquarium. So if you were to ask someone, if you were to go into someone's house who has an aquarium and say, what's your favorite fish? And they say, my favorite fish is my discus. You say to them, when's the first time you ever saw a discus? And they'll say, oh, I bought this discus at such and such fish store. But if you ask this, I didn't ask you where you bought this discus. I asked you, where's the first time you ever saw a discus? And nine out of 10 people are going to say, oh, you know what? For me, it was at the Vancouver Aquarium. For so-and-so, it was at the Waikiki Aquarium. For so-and-so, it was at the Florida Aquarium. And it goes on and on. So what we really thought about is, you know, 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen unprecedented job loss. We've seen major financial crisis. Yet, we've seen unprecedented spending in the pet world, home and garden world. And, you know, I'm really a believer that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. And that's when, you know, those that can help should help. And that's my personal uh, kind of philosophy. And what we're really doing is we're just bridging the gaps between, you know, aquarium hobbyists who are fortunate enough to have ever gained inspiration from a public aquarium that if they want to buy a bucket of Piscine Energetics pellets, we are giving a bucket of those pellets to the aquarium or zoo of their choice. So we have a, a website called SaveYourAquarium.com, and this is running right across North America, and we've just expanded this with Biaza, which is the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and continuing to expand this across Europe with the uh, European Union Aquarium curators. And so, yeah, it's really just uh, an opportunity for all of us to come together and help the institutions that have inspired us, so many of us, to get into this hobby. No, that's great. And definitely a great program. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Nuri, did you have any maybe last minute quick words of wisdom? My personal words of wisdom is for, and I'll speak strictly from a from a selfish standpoint, <laughs> but also some advice is, um, you know, fish survive on calories, not grams. And um, for those of you who are interested in fish nutrition, I would encourage you to have that conversation further with, you know, your service company or your aquarium store and uh, have a conversation around calories and value for calories and how do we minimize packaging and being sustainable going into into this trade from a packaging standpoint, from a calorie standpoint, from a sourcing standpoint. Um, I think it's a conversation that not enough people are having, yet we have a, a aquarium hobbyist for the most part understand the basic chemistry and we can all test our water and we you know some advanced hobbyists who have reef tanks can 
understand advanced chemistry, but I think there's a lot to be learned on some basic nutrition. That's very true. Definitely very true. Well, thanks again, Nuri, and to my producer, Mark Winner, for making the show possible. Really appreciate your joining us, Nuri. Thank you very much for having me. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and support your public aquaria. Keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And consider supporting Piscine Energetics' SaveYourAquarium.com campaign. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.